Great. Well, welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined by return guest and podcast favorite, Grady Hendrix, to talk about selling haunted houses, dolls, and more. So welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm actually in the middle, while I was so late to do this interview, I'm in the middle of putting the slides together for the How to Sell a Haunted House in the Challenging Market show that I'm going to be doing out on the road. So um, that's always a lot of fun, but it's um, I'm, I'm really diving into some really rank clip art uh, and stock photos. Uh, stock photos are so weird. Like you scroll through them enough and you're like, mm-hmm. people are no longer performing human behavior. They're doing, they almost look like they're like, doing whatever the AI told them to do. It's very, very... Like, what are these prompts? What, what was yeah. the direction? Yeah. Like, um, they, I was looking at real estate clip art and uh, or stock photos, and, like, the number of pictures of people handing keys to people, and then you, you know, it's like saying the word uncle over and over. It starts to lose all meaning. And then, like, the way they're handing the keys gets stiffer and stranger. I just felt like I'd slipped into some kind of parallel universe where human behavior was just off by like four degrees that's weird i've heard a lot of good things about your your book tours and live shows oh i'm I'm glad you know i do it mostly for my well mostly for myself because i did a regular book tour for horror store and like it was dismal man and i was like never i'll never eat turnips again i'll never go hungry again <laughs> and um like scarlett o'hara and so i really the best friends exorcism one i was trying to figure things out but paperbacks from hell's where i started really understanding what what people wanted to see and also i feel like if people go through the trouble of leaving their house and coming Mm -hmm. somewhere like should make it worth their while you know at least try um the idea of like just reading from the book and answering questions i just would rather gnaw my own face off i got it well as the daughter of two realtors do you have questions for me Oh, totally. Well, you know, it's funny, like, um, disclosure laws vary so much from state Mm -hmm. to state. So where are you? What state are you in? Uh, my parents, Southern California. Oh, so, oh, so California is pretty, they're with stigmatized properties. I think murders, you have to declare everything. I think hauntings too, I think. I think so. But I remember I would always tell my dad, like, oh, I walked by this house and it gave me creepy vibes. And he's like, give me the street address. I'll pull it up right now. I'll tell you if anything weird has ever happened there. (laughs) And were you ever on the money? I was never. No. Never. Never. Well, you know, it's funny. Like, so many haunted houses. um, I mean, I don't want to be a killjoy, but, like, they're just fabricated, you know? Um, And they're weird. Like, there's that... um, I mean, the Winchester Mystery House. I mean, that's all made up, you know? None of that about Sarah Winchester is true. It's an interesting story, but it's a weird story. And then you start getting to places like Myrtle's Plantation in Louisiana, where it's like, you can spend a long time reading their website and looking at their Wikipedia page and all their stuff. Because it's what, you know, the woman bought it to like make a a charming B&B. And um, then they were ghosts. And she's like, oh no, my B&B is ruined. And then the press came and they covered it. And she became, and people started coming to see the ghost. And now it's a big ghost tourism Mm. stop. And, um, you know, you can read that website for a long time and never see the word slavery. Uh, um, You know, uh, and it's, you know, and it's weird, like, I was looking at how many like haunted bordello tours there are out West. 
And, you know, Chamber of Commerce in El Paso basically brags about their haunted bordello tour. And you've got all these haunted plantations and things. And I feel like I don't know how I feel about going where dead or murdered sex workers live the worst years of their lives and going to see where enslaved workers live the worst years of their lives. Like, like, is that, is that bad? I think it's bad. I mean, these people were exploited and held captive when they were alive and to, for the economic benefit of the people who owned the property. And now when they're dead, the same thing's happening. It's, it's really troubling. It is. So anyways, yeah, that's my, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not, the, the show's, the show doesn't talk about ghost tourism, but I find ghost tourism really weird because if you actually believe in ghosts and why would you be on a ghost tour if you don't believe in ghosts, then what you're doing is really questionable. The sort of ethics and morality of it. I've never done one. I don't want to. Like, I mean, I, you know, I like ghost stories, but like you start thinking about who these ghosts are. And it's like they're murdered women, they're murdered sex workers, they're murdered enslaved workers. Like they are, you know, murdered children. Like you're like, what am I doing? Like what am I looking at here? I say I don't think I've ever really thought about the ethics of that, but you make a good yeah. Point. Well, I mean, you know, the only I will say there is one. There, there, there are a couple of ghost stories about ghosts going on tour. Um, there's there's a great one I think from like the third and I can get behind that like um there's a great one from like the 13th century or something where this woman like is walking through Rome and she sees like her godmother coming out of a basilica for the Virgin Mary and like her godmother's been dead for a while and she's like oh were you so-and-so and And her godmother's like oh totally and she says you know um well what are you doing you know you're dead what what's, what's your ghost doing and the ghost of her godmother says, well, um, before I died, I was absolved of my sins, but I forgot to mention to the confessor that I was like a big old lesbian back in the day. And I had sex with tons of girls and like totally slipped my mind, forgot to confess it. And so when I died, I went to hell for not confessing and being forgiven for all my, my girl sex. And she's like, oh, well, so what are you doing wandering around? Like, you know, you should be in hell, I guess. And the godmother's like, well, the Virgin Mary was like, I think this is, you know, all these lesbians in hell. It's it's bad. I don't like it. And so, and apparently there were like 30,000 of them. And the Virgin Mary's like, nope, I'm taking you all out of hell and you can go to heaven. Big one for Virgin Mary. Right. And then before they went, all 30,000 of the dead lesbian ghosts were like, we want to go on a worldwide tour of all the holy places for the virgin mary because she's awesome and so they're yeah. doing like a ghost tour and so and the godmother's like i gotta go gotta run bye and it takes <laughs> off to the, the next, next stop. stop yeah it's probably a pretty fast tour you know you're like out get off the bus run get back on the bus go to the next stop but i can get behind that ghost tourism yeah afterlife like under the tuscan sun deal going on <laughs> exactly all right well you have a new book that i think when this episode comes out it will have been out for a week. Okay. Yeah. So how to I sell do have a haunted a house. Yeah. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, how to sell a haunted house is about a uh, adult brother and sister who can't stand each other because, um, because they're a brother and a sister. And unfortunately when their parents pass away in an accident, 
they have to to work together to clean out their childhood home and, and put it on the market. And of course, it's haunted. Um, all that's right there in the title. But what the title doesn't tell you is it's haunted by puppets and dolls, which I'm sorry, disgusting. Um, but, you know, it's everyone goes, oh, puppets and dolls are so gross and creepy, but we're surrounded by them every day. Um, I had forgotten that we had a doll, doll cabinet like in our den where we ate breakfast, all these little dolls in this glass cabinet watching us until like I was writing the book. You know, we, we grew up with all this crap all over the place and, and it's spooky. I guess maybe as I got into a teenager, they started making me really uneasy. My grandmother yeah. would make me sleep in the middle room. And that's where she had floating shelves full of dolls. And then the ones that scared me the most were the timeout dolls. I don't know if you're familiar. I, oh, the ones with their arms crossed that hide they have their no faces. Face. Yeah. They they're no totally, face. They're, just... they're Blair witching it. They're like right at the end of the Blair witch with the guy in the corner. Yeah. That's what the timeout dolls are. Yeah. And there was like three of them right at the foot of the bed that I would sleep in. And I wouldn't sleep a wink. I was just looking at them waiting for them to turn around because I was just convinced the minute I turned the light off and closed my eyes, that's when they were going to turn around. Oh, totally, totally. And and they probably did. They just waited for you to go to sleep and then they just stood over you with their little blank faces. Um, well, but also though, you know, we think of dolls like that, but also like we fill our cubicles up with action figures and Funkos and Baby Yoda dolls and our dogs have dolls. It's, it, you know what I mean? It's like we're we're really surrounded by tiny little imitation versions of ourselves. My daughter's too so she is in her her big baby doll phase oh like actual that. baby dolls that like goo goo gaga baby dolls yeah she loves it she loves taking it's, care of them it's weird i find that weird so let me ask you a question because gendered toys for kids right like my sister was one of those my kids will not play with guns and then she's like they just turned everything they found into a gun uh she has two sons but like did your yeah, daughter was she like did she see have friends who had baby dolls like where does the urge come from where does it I don't know because I my son is eight so a lot of the time she would just play with his toys but she right. went to a daycare for a little bit and that's what she wanted that's what she played with was the dolls that she did not have at home and my husband and I were like oh we never even thought about getting her dolls that wasn't yeah. a thought that crossed our mind but I guess if she likes them and she actively wants them sure like, sure I'll get you some dolls yeah I guess as a kid like the idea of playing parent to something just seems so Maybe tedious to me like like i'm saying like like but i had tons of action figures you know star wars mm -hmm. and gi joe and stuff and they would fight constantly or get along or have dinner or whatever but like yeah the thought of so it, i don't know i don't i don't i can't i don't have that urge which which like i, I so it's hard for me to identify with it you know but i guess yeah my my son was pretty paternal though he did like also taking care of like his action figures and calling them his children and being a dad oh wow well, I guess my so. stuffed animals, I was really always concerned that they were like warm enough and tucked in enough. And like, yeah. I would leave books on the bed so they could like read, you know, like while I was gone at school, so they weren't yeah. bored. So yeah, maybe, maybe that's like, those are all part of the same thing. I will say in this book, we are back in Charleston. Again. Modern day. So what was that like as someone who grew up there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank God it was modern day because like Charleston's so changed from when I grew up that I was like writing books set there in the 80s and the 90s. I was having to like not look at things when I drove around, which made it hard to drive. Um, I'd hear thumps a lot and get home to the little hair stuck in the bumper. Um, 
But it was really hard because Charleston's so radically different from where it was when I grew up. So it was just really um, nice to not have to avoid looking at what was around me. But this is it. I'm done with Charleston. Time to move on. I'm a big boy. I can write about other places. So this is like the tight Charleston trilogy. Yeah, I got I got nothing else to say about it. You know what I mean? Like people from Charleston love talking about Charleston, as do I. But like I, I, I need for the sake of my sanity, I need to to move on. But I also, you know, I'm probably always going to be writing about that part of the world just because it's what I know, you know, and it's so it, it makes the curve so much shorter when I'm ramping up a book. Um, you know, I, I I'm writing a book set in St. Augustine, Florida right now. And it's like, well, you know, Savannah, Charleston, St. Augustine, it's three historic coast, southeastern coastal cities with big tourist industries and historic downtown. So like I'm in the same ballpark, you know, I just, uh, I can't go from zero. I just can't, I'll, I'll never learn enough about a place to write it authentically. If like starting from zero, I don't think. Has Charleston always been the tourism hotspot that it is today? I mean, I guess I've only been aware of it since I moved out from California to Indiana and then here to Pittsburgh, where I heard people say, like, they go to Charleston to vacation. Right. It's weirder now than it was. Like, it's way more touristy than it was. Like, now cruise ships stop there and all this stuff. But when I was growing up, I mean, we still had the carriage tours. We still were historic. It was just a lot sleepier. You know, it was a lot quieter. downtown was smaller um it was it was really really different um but it's been a touristy city for going back forever yeah and it's weird you grow up with like a love hate well mostly a hate hate with tourists like i have a hard time being a tourist now and not feeling really weird and guilty and out of place and awkward because you grow up just like the answer to every question about what's annoying you is a tourist you know Who's blocking all the traffic? A tourist. Who's driving too slow? A tourist. Who's standing in front of me like a goober and not getting out of my way because I need to go in that store and exchange these pants? A tourist. You know, who's driving up prices? Tourists. Like, you know, so it's just like, so to be a tourist is really, it's it's conflicting. It's a conflict for me. And a ghost tourist. Don't, I can't even. I'm going to say my husband's family is from up in Traverse City, Michigan, uh, but it is funny to hear my in-laws talk about like oh when cherry fest is in town like it's impossible you can't go to the store and it is like i don't feel like it's that much traffic compared to living in a city but just like the little change for them is like i can't believe it i can't go anywhere yeah well because you know your economy is dependent on these people so it turns into this like real um hostage situation you want their money but you resent their presence i really loved the book i don't think i said that in the episode yet Yeah, I mean, you don't have to, but I appreciate it. I love compliments. (laughs) I, well, I mean, I love the kind of stories, even outside of horror, that feature adult siblings coming back home for whatever reason. That is like catnip for me. I will eat it every time. Like wedding, funeral, bringing someone home for the holidays for the first time. Like, I just love that. Do you have siblings? I, I do. How many? Uh, I'm the oldest. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Okay. Is it different because I'm the oldest? Um, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. No, it sounds like it's not. I mean, I because I love that. That I was just doing that over Christmas with my family. I love that like chaos energy. Yeah. And everyone's mental age regresses to like 15. Yes. 
I was going to, yeah, I was going to mention that you did capture the, like you're back home and suddenly all your bad habits from when you were 16, like you're an angsty teenager, everything is getting under your skin, just like it used to. Well, it's also with your siblings. It is in, you know, you make up your mind about your sibling when you're a kid and your, your brother or sister is a kid. And then you never really change your mind for the rest of your life. It's really weird. It's very unfair. It is. Well, I'm a, quite a bit older than my stepbrother. I'm seven years. It's a seven year difference. So when I left for college okay. at 18, he was 12 and he was really annoying. And, you know, he's a man now. He's out of college. He has a grown job. And I still have a hard time seeing him. Like, you're just like an annoying little kid. Oh, absolutely. And also <laughs> friends, siblings, like friends, brothers and sisters. You're like, oh, my God. You were so annoying when you were a child and you're still annoying. And like, you know, they're like a, you know, a chief resident in neuropsych or something, you know, like, and you're like, <laughs> oh, you're such a loser. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I, but I really love those interactions. And, you know, it's funny, like my family is my parents are getting older because I've got three older sisters and then a younger, much younger half brother. But my family, especially my sisters, you know, as our parents get older and really, you know, or, or their health is sort of, you know, they're in their late 80s and they're having to make a lot of their health is really a factor in what they can do now. And it's interesting to see the four of us sort of trying to figure out what we look like as a family once our parents die. You know what I mean? It's like, it's really hard to figure that out. Like it's, you suddenly don't have those people you had in, you know, that were the common denominator. Yeah. And that is it's true. weird. I mean, do you also have the, you're going to have to come together to go through their estate part of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, we'll have to. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's, um, and I already get warning signs about, you know, I've already got different sisters who want dibs on different things. And I'm, I'm the executor of my mom's will. And so, um, uh, cause I'm the boy. Um, and, uh, I already have people laying dibs on stuff. And I, you know, Jesus Christ, it's, I, it's already, you know, my, my mom, is, not only is she not, is the corpse not even cold yet, it's still moving and she's talking not, and she's like, not even dead. yeah, she's, you know, driving a car still. And so like, um, but we're already, you know, oh, I really want that, that dictionary stand. I really want that painting. Uh, actually, there's a painting none of us want. Um, it's a family painting, but like. Of you guys? Uh, yeah. And so like. Like we might just assign it to one of us. You don't have to display it; just keep it in the garage or something. Like the just family of Dorian Gray. Yeah, maybe it'll keep you all from aging. Well, we also all had these portraits painted of us by this woman who was who was a Charleston artist, Alicia. Ray, and her claim to fame was that she was an extra or had a minor character role in Gone with the Wind. And so we all have these <laughs> posed oil portraits of us as small children and we look like the gloomiest most gothic family <laughs> from like 17th century spain but instead of like posing with like these we're supposed to be like our stuffed animals and little toys and things it, mm -hmm. they're really weird and like mine's afflicted with some kind of rot and so it, it's like degenerated into this i look like some hideous hideous um family weirdo who's been locked in the attic with like some horrible skin condition for 30 years it's really bizarre so i don't know what we're going to do with those too they will have a big picture yeah. burning when my parents die yeah it could be cathartic 
oh my god and then like we throw the pictures in and all of us just collapse into ashes as we watch a big hereditary moment yeah i know yeah so the book does deal with the unfortunate death of louise and mark's parents and that's what brings them together um and you mentioned that louise and mark do not care for each other coming together to deal with this estate and i will say that was extremely stressful reading experience on my part and as i was reading it i absolutely hated mark with every ounce of passion like every cell in my body absolutely hated him and i was thinking i'm like at some point he's going to try to flesh him out and i will not buy into it i hate this man he's hateable (laughs) but then we get a little more of his side and i was like well mark (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's it was it was really fun to write mark i love guys like that you know big loud dudes who are their own worst enemies and who are always a lot of fun but the party never stops um i love guys like that and you know um but but you don't want to be around them a whole lot uh limited doses is key to keeping the love alive um so mark was a blast to write but yeah you know louise has a version of her family story that she thinks is the right one and Mark has a completely different one that he thinks is the right mm-hmm. one. The fact is they're both right and wrong, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I remember several times being really just carpet yanked out from under me, blown away when I would hear a family story from one of my sister's points of view that was just so radically different from my experience. And I, mm-hmm. I think, God, what? Are you, are you just making this up to mess with me? Is this what you're doing? Is that how sad you are? And then I realized that, no, this is their experience. And like, and so those moments really rocked my world. And so I was hoping to get a little of that in there, you know, just that idea that we think we've got our family's number and we never do. No. Well, I think in getting more into that with the generational trauma that's going on, that they're dealing with. And I think also, yeah, looking at certain generations whose way of dealing with problems was not dealing with them or not talking about things because it was not pleasant to talk about. And we don't talk about things that are not pleasant to talk about. I understand. Yeah. And on the one hand, you know, I do miss that a little bit. Like people who could just handle something horrible, dust their hands off, put it in a box and never think about it again. And I feel like there is a generosity about that. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I know if you go through the most humiliating worst time in your life, you know, it's nice that people don't bring it up all the time or ask you about it all the time, you know, but at the same time, you're going to want to talk about it. And it's also nice that people don't pretend it didn't happen when you want to talk about it. So I feel like both sides of that work. Um, Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, it's a trait that's rapidly going by the wayside. And my family, you know, my parents got divorced when I was about 13. And so, my oldest sister was probably in her early 20s. And, and we really did grow up as a, a family that on the outside was trying to be perfect. You know, my mom made matching outfits for my sisters. Like it was very nicey-nicey. And we weren't. And no one is. And so when they got divorced, it was such a relief that we didn't have to pretend everything was okay anymore. And after that, my sisters and I were like, we'll talk about anything. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> it's, it's no holds barred. Um, so, and, and that was, I think, much healthier if you've got to go to one extreme or the other. Yeah. And I mean, there's always room for nuance. And I think with the characters, you do, 
you know, like Louise's mother and their aunt, like really getting into what their thoughts were. And at the time, they thought what they were doing was in the best interest of their family. This is what they thought was right. They were not doing a malicious thing where it's like, we're not going to talk about it because we're embarrassed. It's like we're saving people from pain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's something really generous about that. Yeah, uh, you know, Um, but yeah, I, and you know, and too often that was um, a bit of a club that got used, that kind of silence was a club that got used to sort of fit people into certain perceptions of them. But you know, it's interesting, V.C. Andrews talks about this, you know, she only did a couple of interviews, but she talks about it a lot that, you know, that people can laugh at her book and think they're over the top and ridiculous. But you know, I, I really believe in opening up all these closets and letting these skeletons out and showing people that they exist, that, that things they didn't even dream of existing uh, are out there and exist in families and that, that that's happened to more people than just them, uh, that they're not alone. And um, although, my God, if you read my sweet Audrina and you're like, <laughs> I identify with that, like, you, you really, I hope you're getting the help you need. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm with BC Andrews. I stand with Virginia. <laughs> Before we get into books, I do have some questions from Patreon supporters. Yeah. Okay. Bring them on. Danielle wants to know what book got you into horror? You know, it's hard because as a kid, I really didn't read much horror. The covers squeaked mm-hmm. me out too much. And I read like Stephen King, like anyone else, and Clive Barker, like anyone else growing up. But I, I mostly read like sci-fi and military stuff and it's really into armies um trying to think a book that well i'm going to give you two short stories that really yanked my crank one is the raft by stephen king in uh skeleton crew that collection because the raft really i just went back to it again it is so bleak and so relentless and so dark i just i got that book the hardcover for christmas the year it came out I think that was like 85, 86, somewhere in there. And I would have been like 13. And I just read The Raft again and again. I couldn't believe it. Like, I just couldn't believe it. It's so abstract and so weird and so just hit me. Um, And then the other one, there were, when we, we, uh, my dad taught at an offshore medical college uh, in the Grenadines in the summers. Um, And so, we would go down to St. Vincent and stay in these little faculty housing cottages and he'd teach during the day. And um, one year there were two of those Clyde Barker books of blood paperbacks down there. Cause a lot of British Brits taught down there and stuff. I think these were American editions. So, and there were two stories that really blew my mind. And one was uh, the, in the Hills, the cities, which is such a, surreal over the top powerful powerful book and and weave world also later when i read that by clive barker it really blew my mind but in the hills the cities really just i never encountered anything like it and then by the same token and it's i think the same volume or maybe the other volume there was a story called the yattering and jack which is a comedy which yeah which is you know a guy he's haunted by a demon and he just decides to ignore it to drive it crazy and it works and those two stories came from the same writer and we're sitting side by side and we're both classified as horror and we're so wildly different really made a deep impression on me. So I would say that, 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 that's where I sort of really began to think about horror. Those, those three stories. 
I think because of the blending of like seeing something so horrific and then seeing like lighthearted horror comedy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, but also so much of horror is funny. Um, yeah. You know, I like like um, Alien is a really grim movie and a dark movie, but there's a lot of really funny jokes in it. You know, um, like 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 Yafat Koto and Harry Dean Stanton are hilarious comet buddy act. Um, you know, and and so people just forget that horror always has some jokes in it. And the one that made the biggest impression on me is Return of the Living Dead uh, from, I think, 85, because it starts out so funny and it just gets darker and darker and darker as the situation gets more and more dire until it really turns into maybe one of the bleakest horror movies almost ever made. But it never cheats. It just stays honest to what's going on all the way through. I have not watched that. Oh, it's so good. Ryan wants to know what film got you into horror? um so, okay so films are different like my friends and i would rent horror movies and um and and have sleepovers and stuff so to me horror movies were always super social and stuff um i'm not sure which one started for me i will say though that sort of the young twosome of something wicked this way comes the disney movie and watcher in the woods both really um really, really did something for me. It just, I remember seeing the TV ads, because I, I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies, and I think both those were PG, so I could go with my family. And I remember seeing the ads and just drooling over them for weeks and weeks and weeks, and like begging my parents to take me to those movies. And Watcher in the Woods is okay, but Something Wicked This Way comes really doesn't disappoint, or it didn't. I never want to rewatch it as an adult, because what if it lets me down? But um, life is full of disappointments. I don't need another one. But um, those two really did. I remember just being sort of like, I was like a chihuahua on, um, you know, on coffee pills, just like, you know, it must have been so annoying. <laughs> um, then Rachel wants to know, is there a subgenre you have no interest in writing? Yeah, um, erotica. I like, I just, just not my bag. I just, I am more power to the people who, who write it. I'm just not, it's just not, I can't do it with a straight face. Um, and so I just, it's just not my thing. I understand that. I'm on that side of TikTok where I get a lot of people that read those books and I'm like, I don't really get it, but you, it seems to make you happy. And that's what yeah. matters. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when putting together the show for How to Sell a Haunted House, I was reading a lot of haunted uh, ghost stories and haunted house stories. And so I picked, I downloaded a couple of anthologies of like horror erotica, like, oh, there might be something funny in here I can use or, or you know, something that'll, and it was just like, just wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't my, I, I am not averse to porn or erotica or anything. This is not a judgment of the category, but spooky erotica, it just wasn't. It wasn't where my head was, you know, it wasn't doing it for me. And zombie erotica really disturbed me. I actually found that genuinely oh. disturbing. Not because I'm like, oh, the person who wrote this is sick, but just because the actual physical act of having sexual interactions with a rotting corpse, just really not my thing. Definitely not. And then the last question, Tessa wants to know, is there anything you've had to edit out of books that you did not want to? Yes, actually, uh, in How to Sell a Haunted House. Uh, well, first off, I never really? want to edit. I always think my editor's full of it. You know, I'm always like, uh, but they're usually right. You know, I'm just like, I'm, I've got a big ego. But in, in My Best Friend's Exorcism, Southern Book Club, and in How to Sell a Haunted House, 
there's a place in Mount Pleasant called Nature's Garden that I always want to get in these books. It is right across the street. It's basically the intersection where Mark and Louise's parents get get killed in their car. It happens on the first page, guys. Or mm-hmm. second page, I don't know. Um, where their accident happens is right there with Nature's Garden. And there was a version of this book where Nature's Garden was involved in an accident. Nature's Garden has been there forever. It's this shack with like screen nailed up on it. And outside of it are 300, 400, 500 yard sculptures. Everything from pink flamingos to concrete yetis to little children bending over and showing their butts to St. Francis of Assisi. Just, just, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And then Nature's Garden sells them. It also, you know, uh, sand dollar paving stones for your garden path. It also sells boiled peanuts, which are pretty good, actually. And and it's a little produce stand as well. I've tried to get Nature's Garden in every single one of my books in Charleston, and I always have to edit it out for room. It just like sticks out like a sore thumb. There's nothing to do with it. It just sits there because I want to write about Nature's Garden. Never been able to. I've had to cut it. So is that always their note? It's just like, it's not necessary. Yeah. And by now I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I know. I guess that nature's, that that page and a half about nature's gardens got to go. Uh, well, we are talking about haunted houses today. We almost did dolls, but I did just do like a doll episode a few months ago. But it would have been exciting because when I did the doll episode, I was kind of talking about the lack of killer dolls. A lot of them were a little more psychological and like, ooh, is it the doll or is it really all in this person's ooh. head? What were you all covering? Just quickly, what were the... Um, I did Magic. Yeah. yeah that one. Um, I did a Ellen Datlow anthology called The Doll Collection mm-hmm. where she specifically said in the call out, like, no killer dolls. Oh. So, no killer wow. dolls. Wow. Um, and then I read one called Frozen Charlotte which did have killer dolls. And I was pretty yeah. happy. It was a YA story. Did you read that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought it was fun. Uh, and it was nice <laughs> yeah. to see dolls getting their hands dirty. There's a really good one. I stumbled across by Carol, Su- Susan Beach, York, Carol Beach, York called revenge of the dolls. 103 pages. It's, it's juvenile fiction from the seventies. Um, but it does have a killer hands on doll in it, but it's beautifully written. I, it was really reading that book blew my hat off um it was just the whole book feels like childhood ending you know and it's like it's just all about those sort of disappointments and it's just lovely it really is so i'll have to check that out and magic really blew me away uh a revenge of the dolls by carol beach york i think um but magic really blew me away too and that's a book i've tried Mm -hmm. a few times to get into and the first 30 pages, I just, like, are tedious as hell. And then it really gets going. I was very confused by the writing style because it jumps around so much and it doesn't tell yeah. you it's jumping around. Like I And I was reading it at night before I went to bed and I would just be a little drowsy and like, wait, he's in high school? I thought he was, a, what? What's yeah. going on? <laughs> so it yeah, took yeah. me a while to really, and then I watched the movie and the movie is a bit more, like, linear, like, point A to point B. How is this the is movie? The story, yes. It's pretty good. It's got young Anthony Hopkins. That's always fun. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, it took me about half of that book to get into it. By the time I was done, I was really glad I stuck with it because I think it really mm-hmm. pays off and is is worth reading. And sometimes William Goldman is like he's one of those writers that like he just makes me feel really inferior and stupid uh, on sort of a line by line level. Um, but uh, yeah, really? but but yeah, it was hard to get into though. 
This episode is brought to you by Fangoria, the world's best horror and cult film magazine since 1979. Listeners can use code Books in the Freezer to get 20% off their order. That includes, of course, merchandise and first time subscriptions and single issues of the magazine. Not only are there tons of articles and interviews about upcoming horror movies, there's a regular segment by Stephen Graham Jones all about slashers called Slasher Nation. So you're going to want a copy. So again, that is code Books in the Freezer. And thank you, Fangoria, for supporting the show. Well, should we get into some books? Let's do it. So the first book I wanted to talk about is Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey. Uh, This is my favorite book I read last year. Yeah. But this is about a woman named Vera. Her mother has reached out to her to call her back home uh, to her childhood home, the Crowder House. And coming back home is complicated because she's been estranged from her mother for several years. um, And her dad was a convicted serial killer who murdered people in the basement. You know, makes things a little complicated coming home. And then there's an artist uh, that's she's the mother's been housing that lives in the pool house that's kind of just looking to capitalize the house for memorabilia and is just kind of waiting for the mom to die and so it's just a lot of complicated interactions with everything like she's in the town and everyone is super weird to her you know because her dad was the noted serial killer of the town and a lot of this book just felt very claustrophobic and you almost like don't know what to think about Vera as a narrator and you kind of start to wonder like why the people in the town are how they are to her like maybe is there more to the story than she's letting on and then you know like creepy stuff starts happening in the house she starts finding notes in her father's handwriting her father died in prison so there was no way he could have done that um and i just i really liked where this story went and it it took a direction that i was not expecting which i think might not work for everyone but i personally very much enjoyed it (laughs) Yeah, I haven't read it. I bet, you know, I really like Sarah's writing a lot. I liked Echo Wife a whole lot. Um, And, you know, there is a thing, right, with children of criminals that I find fascinating um, because they get tarred with the same brush, you know, and they didn't do anything. They were just born. Uh, So I'm actually annoyed that sort of went there with that before I got a chance to. because um, because I've really I've really I don't know what it is I would do with it but I wanted to do something about the child of a serial killer for a while um even though serial killers are a little overdone I feel like their families their kids aren't and the fact that you know you learn about the BTK killer's wife and I think daughter um and we're sort of in the media and and these families have to live with it and Jeffrey Dahmer's father and it's just good god yeah being connected to that so rating wise, I would say this was like a fridge. I think there was some freezer worthy parts that genuinely creeped me out, uh, but would highly recommend it. Like I said, one of my favorite books that I read last year, that is Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey. So I picked three. The first one is sort of gimme. Everyone's going to roll their eyes at this one. Um but Ann River Siddons was best known as being sort of a Southern lady writer, you know, stories about families and the South and about women with the poor, you know, very much like sort of realist lit fic kind of stuff, but a bit more popular lit fic. But she wrote one horror novel in the early 80s called The House Next Door that really is. Stephen King goes on about it at length in his nonfiction book, Dance Macabre. Um, so I, I feel like it's a little been there, done that for some people, but it is such a classic. Uh, 
that I felt remiss not mentioning it. Um, it's it reads fast. She's a really readable writer, um, and it's got. I'm a sucker for sort of that early '80s suburban living. You know, pictures of martinis and gin and tonics, and people driving to tennis in their station wagon and stuff. And I mean, that's kind of the suburbs I grew up in. And so this book is full of that. Um, and there's a bit. It's, it's told in first person, and there's a bit of a bitter, poisoned tone to the narrator. It doesn't sit right at first. And it's, it's, it's only when you get towards the end of the book, you're like, oh, I got where this is coming from. But it's about a couple who live in a beautiful Atlanta suburb, and someone builds a really architecturally beautiful house next to them. And there's just something about the way the house is put together that brings out the worst in people and kind of urges them to their own destruction. And it's it's got some of the it's got a two really phenomenal set pieces in it. Um, and and if you haven't read it, I really recommend it. It's one of those books that you pick up and you like blow through in a day. It's it's really phenomenal. So well, let's pick that up. It's been on my TBR for a long time, but I did one time look through Goodreads and look at um, her other books. And you're right, they're all like Southern women's fiction. And I was like, yeah. I was very taken aback. I was like, oh, maybe I'll look at what other horror novels she's written. I'm like, doesn't look like much. Yeah, none. And, you know, it's interesting. I've never read an interview with her where she talks about why she did this one. And it's also weird that it's so good. Like, she doesn't fall into any of the traps that sometimes, you you know, sometimes a writer will, like, quote unquote, slum in another genre. And you can tell they just feel like it's a little beneath them. And they do things that to people who know the genre are a little hackneyed, but they act like they just discovered, you know, fire. And and she doesn't make any of those missteps, which I find really impressive, given that this was a one and done for her with heart. Yeah. Wow. I would I would put this in the freezer. There's a set piece in this that is really unpleasant um, on a social level, because I feel like one of the problems with horror is is an arms race, right? Like, oh, you know, we've all seen fingernails get ripped off now. Like, you know, back in Pet Cemetery, Stephen King could cut someone's Achilles tendon and everyone was like, ooh, oh my God, we've never seen that before. Now, like, you know, pulling fingernails, pulling teeth with like, you really got to go there. But what we're all still vulnerable to is humiliation and shame. Um, and I think we may have strong stomachs for gore, but strong stomachs for for humiliation and just awkwardness and shame, we don't have them. And so, like, and this like secondhand cringe. Yeah, and this book has has a set piece that's that's mortifying. So I'd, I'd give it. I put it firmly in the freezer. And it may not be a oh, set wow. piece that people think has aged well, but I think it has. And I think Siddons was well aware of sort of the sexual politics at play with it. Okay, I'm intrigued. She's not dumb. She knew what she was doing with that scene. <laughs> so what was that title again? Oh, uh, The House Next Door by okay. Ann Rivers Siddons. Uh, my next one is called White Smoke by Tiffany D. Jackson. This is a YA novel. It follows a girl named Marigold who is moving to the Midwestern city of Cedarville with her newly blended family. Her mother has accepted a grant with the Sterling Foundation. Foundation. And with that grant, she gets... Um, accommodation so she gets a free house for a year and it's a newly renovated house but on a block full of just dilapidated houses so it is like the only livable house in maple street and marigold has some issues adjusting to her new home um she's bringing a lot of 
trauma just from this divorce and the new living situation and missing her dad, you know, and stuff that she went through back home. But now in her new house, she notices that doors close by themselves, household items go missing, and her new stepsister tells her about her new friend that wants her to get out. It gets a little spooky, but I will say she does a great job of crafting the story and having the nods to the monsters are due on Maple Street, like they live on Maple Street, and you kind of get a little bit of that thematically i think one thing tiffany jackson tiffany d jackson's always really good at is bringing in like also big current issues into her story without them feeling forced like last year she released the weight of blood which was like a carrie retelling about um segregated high schools but in this one she talks about it's a haunted house story but it's also tackling issues like gentrification and the war on drugs and for-profit prisons in a way that i feel like just seeped in naturally into the story i'd say this was a fridge book fridge there was a few scenes and the ending uh when everything gets revealed did creep me out a little bit so that was white smoke by tiffany d jackson all right um i haven't read it so i got nothing um but uh but it does sound good uh even though it's a fridge not a freezer so my next one is uh the elementals by michael mcdowell um, and have you read it? Yes, I love it. Yeah, I- anyone who hasn't read it needs to read it. It's um, it's about a family of the McCrays. I think the McCrays, um, and they live down in Alabama. And every summer they go out to oh gosh, I think it's called Belmont, Beldon, Beldon, and uh, which is their like country house for you know, sort of their beach house for the summer. And it's not one; it's three identical Victorian houses on this spit of sand sticking out into the Gulf and they get Mm -hmm. separated at high tide from the mainland. And there's the Savage family and the McRae family. And they're sort of, you know, a blended family. And um, one family's in one house, one family's in the other house. And then the third house is uninhabited and it's slowly being consumed by the sand dunes. And also it's full of ghosts, but they're not really ghosts. It's, it's interesting. So I never really, anyways, so, Michael McDowell was maybe one of the great paperback original writers in America. He always wrote paperback originals. Uh, Stephen King thought he was phenomenal. Tabitha King, when uh, McDowell died, I believe he died of AIDS in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, She uh, finished his last manuscript for him, uh, sort of at his request. Yeah. Um, And he's just a really good stylist, a really good craftsman. He has an ear for that part of the country and for big families, which I love. He's most famous for having written the screenplays for Beetlejuice and The Nightmare Before Christmas. And you can see a bit of Beetlejuice in this with that father-daughter relationship between this sort of like this very rough and tumble kind of overly adult relationship between a father and um, his daughter. And I don't mean adult in a second way, but I mean, like, you know, they're, yeah. they insult each other and run each other down and like treat each other like adults not who are friends rather than a parent and a child. Um, and, but it's really good. He's great at the creepy and I never really understood the elemental thing, but I was looking up a taxonomy of ghosts recently. Um, and so ghosts, you know, there's, there's ghosts, there's theories that ghosts are, you know, uh, the souls of the dead who are still here, Mm -hmm. people who have unfinished business and their soul sticks are, or, you know, something's happened over and over and created this psychic impression that repeats this bit of history again and again. And the elemental theory is that this is something supernatural that's pre-human that is aggressive 
and violent and connected to some place. And it just wants to hurt things. Um, and so it's like an elemental force of nature uh, as a ghost. Um, and that's what the ghosts are in this. But I, I think it's phenomenal. I, I definitely would put it in the freezer. It's so well written. Mm -hmm. It's so unique. There's nothing else like it out there. Um, just the image of these houses out on this spit of land being slowly eaten by the sand. It's it, He's really a beautiful writer too. So put it in the freezer. Definitely. I love that book. And my favorite part of the book was the father-daughter relationship. And the, yeah. the dialogue was just so snappy. So back and forth. Like you can tell that he had screenplay writing chops. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and all the thing with the sand, when I, when I rewatched Beetlejuice a few years ago, um, oh, and yeah. they go out and the house is surrounded by sand and there's the big worms and everything. I was like the elementals right there. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. My last pick is You Should Have Left by Daniel Kelman. This is translated from the German by Ross Benjamin. Have you read this one? I have not. And I've heard the name before, but I have not, or the title before, but I have not read it. How is it? It's pretty good. Um, it did get adapted a few years ago by Blumhouse. It was like a Kevin Bacon, Amanda Seyfried movie. I have not mm. seen it, so I okay. do not know how it was. But it is tiny. It is like, this is the size of my hand. It's oh my like God. Tiny, it's yeah, adorable. Like, I know, and it's like a cute little 100-page book. Um, so this was originally in German. It's epistolary, and it's a seven-day span of the narrator who is a a writer who is trying to focus on writing a screenplay. So he's kind of rented out this cabin um, in the, I think it's the German countryside with his wife and child. And he's just going to hunker down and focus on this screenplay, which is going to be a sequel to the screenplay that made him famous. And he's really struggling with writing the sequel. And he starts to take it out on his wife and kids, but you kind of like all the problems are coming to a head and he just starts becoming obsessed with things um, in a very House of Leaves way, like he becomes obsessed with the fact that the house doesn't make sense. The dimensions of the house don't make sense when measuring like the outside of the house to the inside of the house and things like should not be where they are. And it is just about as you're reading the story, it becomes more claustrophobic and just his emotional kind of downfall as you kind of see how like obsessed he gets with this house and what things mean. Um, and then he just with his screenplay and with the relationship with his wife and with his daughter and just kind of everything piling up on each other. I see. I'm a sucker for that kind of like dimensional stuff, you know, where where mm -hmm. the house doesn't add up. I was always when I read uh, House of Leaves, I always wanted more of that, uh, yeah. you know. So, yeah, that's right up my alley. It's not a big time investment. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I, you know, I really, I wish I could write shorter. Like I find short is so, Sarah Grand's Come Closer is a great example of a super short book that's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm jealous of this. And how, how is the translation? Because sometimes I feel like I can tell a translation, like it's got a little mm -hmm. stiffness to it. How was it? I have not read it for a few years, uh, but I don't remember having issues with it. And you're right. There is kind of like a, a sense. I read a lot of um novels that were translated from Japanese and they do have like a, a feel to them yeah there's like a, a Japanese to English like translated feel to narratives yeah yeah um but yeah so but this is like and this is still in print I believe so um okay. when did I read this it's a good question this came out or it was translated 2017 
Okay. It was adapted a few years ago. So I would think. Yeah. No, I'm in. <laughs> I'm going to grab it as soon as we get off this call. All right. So that is You Should Have Left by Daniel Kelman. So my last book is um, also short, and it's a bit of a switch from the others. I think it's like 148 pages. It's a kid's book. Well, like juvenile fiction from 1978 called Moth Manor. Um, like Moth, M-O-T-H, Manor, M-A-N-O-R, uh, by Martha Bacon. Um, and it is out of print, but you can find used copies pretty easily. And it is a blast. It is so much fun. It's about a haunted dollhouse. Basically, these two girls, um, uh, one is uh, Sylvia, one's Mimi, I know, and the other, I think, is Sylvia. And they get this dollhouse and they love the dollhouse and they play with the dolls and they get these dolls and the dolls are this weird assortment of dolls, like a baby doll and they make the baby the king. And then there's a French doll that everyone falls in love with and a wooden soldier. And the dolls are all alive. And um, there's a, there's a, and there's a crisis with a wedding that doesn't come off between the dolls. And after that, nothing's the same again. And then the little girls grow up and they get older and the dollhouse is just this haunted dollhouse in the attic that makes noises from time to time. And then it gets sold. The threat is it's getting sold to a antique dealer who's gonna, who hates it, who's going to like um, just sell it off bit by bit. And um, it is a blast. It's, it's a bit of Phantom Tollbooth, a bit of Neil Gaiman. Um, the uh -huh. writing is phenomenal and hilariously funny there's a there's a there's and, and the incidents are just weird like there's a desert where lost things go if you lose something it's in the desert and the desert's very far away and very scary um and there's a real feel for lost childhoods in it um and there's a whole sort of like um a, a, a minor subplot where like a bat falls in love with one of the dolls and the dolls are like, oh, this is disgusting this bat's an idiot um, and you know, the dolls say things like, you know, poetry is a dreadful thing. You never know where it's going to lead you. It's horrible. Um, and it's just very, very British and very, very dry and, and kind of moving towards the end as these little girls turn into old women and they get in their sixties and seventies and eighties in it and, and their relationship with this haunted dollhouse. And it's just Reading it was such a blast of fresh air. It was so much fun. Um, it, it's one of those books that just kept every couple of pages. There was some turn of phrase or some surreal incident or some odd odd corner that just kept making me smile. So I, even though it's about a haunted dollhouse, I would put it on the counter. I wouldn't even put it on the fridge. It is not scary in the slightest. Um, but it is <laughs> Moth Manor is absolutely, I hate to use this word because it sounds so affected and quaint but it's so charming um Aww. so if you need something happy in your life moth manners got your got your number i was looking this up earlier and it does look very cute so are there illustrations because i do see here yes there are illustrations gail burrows yeah and actually the illustrations are the weakest part of the book they're they're fine really? there's nothing yeah they're fine they're nothing wrong with them but they're pretty straightforward mm -hmm. and the book is so not straightforward i mean it's it's somewhere between magical realism and and fairy tale um that it's really um it's just i i just it's hard to describe so the illustrations are sort of standard um illustrations that don't quite live up to the um 
to the to the tone of the book. I mean, like one doll's from Philadelphia. It's always talking about me. And they're always like, you in Philadelphia, shut up about your Philadelphia. No one cares about your Philadelphia. You know, it's just great. I don't know. I, I'm going back to read it again. It's 148 pages and the type's big and it's got pictures. You can read it in an afternoon. Oh, I'm going to see if my library has it. Yeah, definitely take a look because it's, it's really worth it. That does. That sounds very cute. Ah, Moth Manor. Like, moth to flame and then manor not like bad manners but like manor like a manor house it's a terrible title it's really mushy in your mouth oh and if anyone's looking for something another children's book that's short but that's terrifying about a haunted doll house among the dolls by william sleater who did house of stairs is intense Ooh. i'll have to look into that one too when was that one written 70s as well 70s. and the illustrations in that one are is that like a golden era for yeah like for, for well also you know it was pre harry potter and it was mm -hmm. pre sort of like like before the 80s children's fiction i think was a little rowdier um you know what i mean no one cared about it as much so you could get some weird hardcore stuff in there without people noticing um, and in the eighties, you know, you had people moving more in a, Hey, let's protect the kids and inspire them and things. And then once Harry Potter came along, everyone started paying attention to children's fiction because they realized it can make you a lot of money. Um, and, but before that, it was a strange backwater and especially in the seventies and early eighties, some really weird dark books came out. This episode is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro FM is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best. Booksellers. I mean, and us. We also have a playlist on there full of books that have been recommended on this podcast. Books in the Freezer special offer. You get two audiobooks for the price of one, just $14.99, with your first month of membership using code FREEZERBOOK. This offer is valid for new members in Canada and the United States. Thank you, Libro FM, for supporting the show. Well, one of the traditions on this show is to talk about a chilling obsession, which is something in horror that you have been enjoying recently. Okay, so... My family's so sick of hearing about this, so I'm glad I can inflict it on other people. <laughs> I watched um, Adult Swim's Yule Log over Christmas, and it is hands down my favorite horror movie of 2022. Um, it's by the guy who did Too Many Cooks, and it is really surreal and really strange and really smart and unexpectedly moving. It is... It is really everything I want in a horror movie. And it's 90 minutes. It's a Yule Log video. Um, I don't want to say too much about it, but it really gave me a lot of hope for horror. That, it, that something horror could be this funny and strange and creepy and moving. And um, mm -hmm. the only thing I'll ding it on 
is it contains, without a doubt, the most egregiously awful Southern accents ever put on film. <laughs> um, they are top to bottom, wall to wall, terrible. Uh, and you just have to get past that. I have a hard time with it. You got to get past it. And I will say, I watched it by myself, and then I watched it with my family. Uh, so we've got everyone there from my 26-year-old nephew to my 87-year-old, well, no, my mom didn't watch it, but like my 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 sisters who are, you know, my age and older, and um, everyone loved it. Everyone really loved it. Or they didn't love it, they were talking about it afterwards. Um, and my mom's endorsement was, what were y'all watching? It sounded weird. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. I know I heard so many people talking about it. It's good it stuff. Out. Yeah. It's, it takes risk. It's smart. I might have to check it out. Okay. What's yours? Um, I have not been watching a ton of horror recently, but um, the menu just came on HBO Max. And I will say I had a bit of fun with that. Mm. Visually, it was a beautiful film. Ray Fiennes absolutely like embodies the like pretentious chef who takes himself like so seriously and just like has to stop the room and tell him like <laughs> this story and I think the dark comedy aspects of it work really well just him telling this like awful story with a, a straight face and like the group of diners and everything was just hilarious and I think those are definitely like the parts that work so I did have a good time with it now let me ask you a question because this is what I always wonder when it's a horror movie in a restaurant or with a chef. Are they cannibals? So no. I think everyone, okay. that is like the, that's the thing everyone went in thinking. And they're not. See, I'm never going to watch it. Um, my, I've heard, <laughs> okay, so I've I heard good, it for you. No, no, no. I've heard good things about it. But my wife is a chef who owns her own restaurant. And, uh, and so I've been, you know, part of her life for the entire time she's been a chef. And so for mm -hmm. us, like, it's like, it's like a lawyer watching a courtroom drama. Like, we just can't do it. We've tried to watch restaurant movies before. And it's like, where's the table touches? What you're serving from the, that side? What were you, what are they doing? How are, how are they, how are they frying that? Like, you know, we just get so caught up in the liberties they take. How dare they? That it ruins mm -hmm. it for us. It ruins it for anyone around us. It's it's yeah. so we just stop doing it. I mean, like we watch clips from the bear and just roll around on the floor laughing because it's so. Really, because that was that was the one that people were like, oh, they really captured yeah. like the line cook. Well, I mean, maybe they she disagrees. Well, it's not just that. It's like it's so over the top intense. It's like they run a restaurant that seems to turn out like grilled cheese sandwiches and french fries and they're like get off my line chef i want to fire all the tuna fish right now it's so crazy intense it would just be like if your mom was in the bathroom screaming like you know put soap on my hands like it's just ridiculously over the top so yeah we ruin it for everyone so we can't watch the menu unfortunately that is hilarious. All right. Well, moving on to the second tradition of our show. Okay. I love to ask our guests for a final girl song. So what is your pick this time? So the song, what was it last time? Hazy Shade of Winter by the Okay. Beatles. So the one I'm listening to with the book I'm writing right now, because the book's set in 1970. So this album just came out and it's set in a home for unwed mothers and they have a, okay. they have a record player, but only two records. And um, they uh, have a rule that there's no sad songs allowed. 
And so they have Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, and they will not let anyone play Bridge Over Troubled Water because it's too sad and life's too sad. But the one song that they will listen to is The Only Living Boy in New York. Um, and so I've been listening to that over and over and over again while I write this book for 2024. Um, so it's very emo choice of mine. I will have to give that a listen. I don't know that I'm familiar with that one. I was going to say, oh, I'm interested in the this 2024 book. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, it's it's essentially, and I don't mind this being out there. Um, I've said it, like, blab about it all the time, but it's a um, uh, sort of Rosemary's Baby riff set in a home mm-hmm. for unwed mothers in 1970. Okay. And um, I, uh, I, I have two relatives, older relatives, who were both sent away uh, back in the day, as they called it. And I've always wanted to write a book set in a home for unwed mothers just because it was such a horrific concept. Um, And they were necessary, but they shouldn't have had to be necessary. You know, like, like these women, their reputations would have been ruined. Their lives would have been ruined because of the way we were. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, but you know, it's interesting. Um, One of the things that really comes up a lot doing the research is, um, even though there's this idea that these girls' lives would have been ruined if they had, you know, kept these children, had these babies, uh, and stayed in their communities, it was really fascinating to see that um, even though Black women and, and teenagers were sent to homes for unwed mothers, many of them weren't. And actually, you know, because the way our adoption system worked, most, you know, it was very, very hard. A, a Black baby was not considered adoptable, what they called um, and so a lot of the black women, you know, kept their babies or their babies were raised within their families. And many of them went on to have perfectly fine lives that so they would have had baby or no. I mean, you never know, right? You've got a yeah. baby, your life's gonna be different, but yeah. careers and, and families and marriage. And so all these bugbear, all these threats that were told to these white teenagers and these white families, you know, you'll ruin your life. You'll never, no one will want you. You'll be the shame of everything. Black communities by and large dealt with that in in a way that was a a little kinder um and a little more caring uh and it's just fascinating to see that divide you know that that yes for a lot of these girls their communities would have turned on them they would have rejected them but that didn't necessarily have to be the way it was and there was an example Mm -hmm. right there in the way black communities um would I mean I'm not saying they were perfect, you know, I'm I'm sure there was shame and there were black women being sent to homes from their mothers, but just to see that like right there, there was an example yeah. of how to do it better. Uh but you know, yeah. no one chose to look at it because they were black people. That's wild. Yeah, that's something I'm not super familiar with and that I know that it happened. I know that yeah people got sent away, but I, I guess I never put much thought into like what was happening in the away. Who were these girls? Right. Where did they live? What was the structure? Who was there it's, like a house mother? Was there like a routine? I know. It's weird. I mean it's a really weird world. And there's not a lot written about it. I mean I could only find mm-hmm. two or three books, uh nonfiction books about it. Uh but you know it's it's weird. I mean in the seventies, they used to advertise a, a babies for adoption in newspapers. You know, they'd say, here's our orphan of the week in the, you know, okay. the St. Louis Tribune or whatever. It'd be a little cute oh, wow. one-year-old and here, his name's Eric and he's spunky and has blue eyes and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like an animal shelter listing? Yeah. It's bizarre. 
Yeah. Well, I am very much looking forward to that. To see what that has in store for us. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, and I'm so sorry I was late. Um, You're all good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's I always have fun doing this. So no, this is great. Yeah, I think you're the author who's probably been on the most. This is your third time. Oh my God, so. people are so sick of me by now. Yeah, two more times, I'll have to send you a jacket or something. <gasps> Please a jacket. I don't. I, I, I don't need another T-shirt, and I don't need a hat. I don't really do hats, but like a jacket, that'd be awesome. A specific like books in the freezer jacket. Yeah, uh, totally. Right, well, thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Uh, the easiest place to find me or to avoid if you don't want to see me is gradyhendrix.com. It's got the link to all my social media tentacles right there. And um, everything you need or or reject is all in one place. Okay. Well, awesome. Like I said, thank you again. I had a lot of fun talking haunted houses and killer dolls and all the things. Awesome. It was a blast. <laughs> Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, or on TikTok at Books in the Freezer, or you can always send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. You can find show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at booksinthefreezer.com. On there, you will find links to all the books mentioned in the episode, um, as well as links to the final girl playlist and the Patreon and affiliate links that you can click on if you are interested in supporting the podcast in that way. But you know, another way you can support the podcast is to take a minute and leave a review on a site like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And I actually have a new Apple review. I'm so sorry if I don't get this name pronunciation right, uh, but the handle is tabulando37 and says five stars, great recommendations. I have enjoyed this podcast and been a regular listener for quite some time. It has helped introduce me to a number of new genres and authors I love who I would have not discovered otherwise. Plus the theme music is cool. Thank you and keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much for your lovely words. And if you would like your review read on the podcast, uh, just take a moment to type one up on Apple Podcasts. I also would like to say, since the recording of this episode, I have seen both the Adult Swim Yule Log uh, movie, and I loved it. I love that it actually starts out as a Yule Log, and just the direction it goes from there is wild. The many directions it goes from there, honestly, wild. Uh, had a fun time with that. And I have also watched Return of the Living Dead, which I greatly enjoyed and cannot believe I have not watched until a few days ago. So that one was on Tubi, too, if you're interested in watching that one as well. But I am Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on Instagram at That's What She Read. And that's That's With Two A's. It's kind of funny, but I've been mistakenly tagged um, in tags that are meant for another account. I think there's a that's what she read with three A's and like they won a giveaway and I got tagged and I had to be like, that's not me. Um, but yeah, so that's what she read with two A's. So as always, thank you so much for listening and see you next time on Books in the Freezer. Books in the Freezer.